You're listening to Through Help and Back. Through Help and Back is a podcast focused on mental health, addiction, treatment, recovery, and all things related to personal improvement and wellness. Don't worry, we're not here to talk about problems without solutions, and we're definitely not here to talk about struggles without success. So come with your problems, leave with our solutions. So you're growing up in the Pacific Northwest, like how in the world did you even start thinking about becoming a therapist? Do you have like an origin story? Like I watched a movie or, you know, how, how, how did you end up uh, pointed in this direction? My origin story probably starts like a lot of therapist origin stories. And that is I came from a very interesting uh, family <laughs> where I'm an only child. However, um, my parents, whom I love dearly, and also they may have done a little bit of damage. <laughs> They they divorced when I was two, and I feel like I was the middle child between them, trying to keep the peace and all that stuff. So literally born to be a therapist. <laughs> and I think that it really solidified for me when I went to Oregon State for you know my undergrad degree, um, and I took a violence against... Yeah, oh, I, thank you for knowing that. I'm not a duck. I'm a beaver. Thank you for knowing that. Who would want to be a duck? Be a beaver. Yeah, it's better. Just fantastic. I'm having a great time now. <laughs> this is amazing. Um, thank you. Yeah. So, um, you know, when I was there, I took a couple of, you know, just regular courses that you have to take. I forget what they're called, just like the regular ones. And one of them happened to be a women's studies course on um, violence against women. And I was fascinated by the way that our culture treats women as lesser. Didn't even think about it. Didn't even like notice that this is a thing until it was very clearly spelled out for me. And I took that and kind of just ran with my own stuff of like, yeah, I was, I'm not being treated very fairly in my family. I'm not being treated very fairly in relationships. Like how, what do I do now? I feel pretty powerless. Like what do I do with this information? Um, and so part of that class is you had to go volunteer at like a domestic violence shelter I actually ended up working at this domestic violence shelter and just really enjoyed listening to all of the survivors' stories. Um, like it was, that was a pretty intense experience where I felt like just being a voice for them or not a voice, but like a, a presence for them and just being a safe space where they could unload their story without judgment was like, didn't even know how powerful that was. And, you know, like we always say, like we offer the things that we wish that we had. And so it very much was that it was, I was offering myself that really, you know, deep space or whatever that I think that I needed. And I was offering that to other people. And I love that. Classic therapist thing to say here. So much to unpack right there, right? Like, <laughs> so much to unpack. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, when you talk about, so there are a couple of things I do want to earmark and kind of get into with that because I'm, I'm fascinated right off the bat because there's, a couple of things there that touch into kind of hot topics when you talk about women's studies and, you know, feminism and being treated lesser than, things like that. But I, I do want to kind of connect the two at the beginning with your early experience. And so that classic caught in the middle between your parents. Um, I'm a child of divorce myself. Uh, I, you know, my parents did... Uh, they tried to do their best to not do that. They would talk about it all the time. We're not going to put you guys in the middle. You're not gonna, but it happens, right? Like humans and things like that. So that feeling of being treated unfairly or that feeling of being sort of disenfranchised or being stuck in a role that wasn't child, you just want to be a child, right? You don't want to be a mediator. Is that specific to the divorce or did you see elements of that in society as a whole as well? Like were you experiencing it from both sides or mostly because of that personal experience? You know, I think it was, I mean, for me, it was mostly that personal experience. Like I, places that I went, they like, in, like school and daycare and things like that. Like they encouraged me to be a kid. They encouraged me to, you know, go and do kid things and play pretend and do all that kind of stuff. And it's so interesting learning about, you know, being an only child and not really having like the, um, social practice that you typically get with siblings. Um, like I very much gravitated towards adults. I gravitated towards, you know, being like a teacher's pet or things like that, just because my experience at home was talking with adults. Like if my parents were having parties, they were not inviting children over, they were inviting adults over. And so, you know, it was, that kind of was definitely in my home space was like, you are to be the adult. The expectations are you are to behave like an adult. And Everywhere else, it was kind of like, no, mm -mm, be a kid, do whatever you want. So that context shifting, I'm thinking about a seven or eight year old, you know, because having to become nimble and adept at, oh, this is where I get to be a child. But now this is where the expectations are adult. 
did you pick up on that pretty quick? I mean, were you, were, I mean, does an eight-year-old you have the awareness to say, this is tough for me, right, the, to play grown-up, to now have to go back into kid role, or did you kind of adapt and, and navigate that pretty smoothly? It was something that I picked up on right away, probably being like five or six years old, I picked up on it, where I would go places and it would be, you know, just, hey, like, have a cheeseburger, hang out, go play in this playpen, like have an awesome time. And then at home, it was very much like, no, like where you're going to sit at the table and you're going to eat steak. And if you don't eat your meal, like you're not leaving, like just so much rigidity, no flexibility. Um, yeah, it was really just an interesting dichotomy between the two worlds. And I think for me, like kind of fortunately and unfortunately, I think that that is what makes me a really good therapist right now is that I can very easily switch between my professional life and my home life. Like I do not take work home with me. Once I am done with clients, I am done. I don't think about them. I don't do anything that involves them at all, unless I receive obviously like an email or something. Right. But like a lot of other therapists who are, yeah, my friends or people that I've worked with or whatever, they don't have that capability, or at least they try to have that capability. It's something that they have to work on. And I have never once had to work on it. It comes very easily for me to just make that rapid switch. In this field, and it's not talked about much, you know, in some Asian cultures, there's this idea of like honor and dying at your desk. Like you've worked so hard that you literally die at your desk. And I think in our field, there's a lot of that honor in like dying on your caseload. Like how could you what do you mean you forget about them? Like, does that mean you're cold? Does that mean you're uncaring? And it's like, no, it means I want to do this for a long time and I don't want to suffocate or burn out or become sick myself through that vicarious trauma. So um, amazing that you have that skill set already because I've seen some therapists leave the field because of their inability to, to draw those lines. So, Like, and if I can't take care of myself, like I, I certainly can't take care of you. You know, like if I'm not well, like my clients are not going to be well. And role modeling is a key part of it, right? It's why we keep our offices nice. It's why we look a certain way and talk a certain way when we're in session and, and why we react a certain way when people give us information. Part of it is maybe it's our real reaction and that's nice. Maybe we're, we're trying to show you, you know, how it might be better for you to react. So there is that element of being a chameleon, um, which is interesting to talk about. So women's studies, okay? So like Oregon State, you know, an amazing school and women's studies. And the reason I want to dive into that is because... Um, right now, uh, you may have picked up on this, and uh, no judgment, we're just talking about what is. There's the, there's this sort of like resurgence of the masculinity and the like, we're going to take back this idea of toxic masculinity and the, the Petersons and the Rogans and the, you know what I mean? And, and I think that a lot of times their view um, or the people who, you know, follow their stuff, their view of feminism or women's studies is this sort of like, you know, women versus men, like penis bashing. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for saying that for me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Let me get my clap. Hold on. <laughs> exactly. Anyway. Um, so tell me what it really is. Like, you know, you were attracted to it. You, you know, what did you pick up from that program and what did you take from it? And let's compare and contrast that with sort of that, like, you know, pop psychology view of it. For me, being a feminist means equality all the way around and not only equality, but equity, right? So like really just figuring out what works for people and providing an opportunity for that to happen. And so, I mean, I think that, you know, equality means everybody gets the same thing, but equity means you get the same thing that works for you, that gives you the same you know opportunities as someone else. And so, I mean, for me, there's definitely, I've heard so many things and I've seen so many things online that are like, you know, fem feminisms are horrible and like they're, you know, sexist in their own way and all these things. And um, like, I've even seen women say that, like I've seen a bunch of just horrible, weird things about, you know, being a feminist or femininity and feminism. And it's very much for me, it is how do we make it an even playing field? So everyone has an opportunity to have the same stuff, like just plain and simple. And that you said equity versus equality. So staying on that for a while, the feminist view of that, because that's the sound bite that jumps off Instagram all the time is right. Like equality of outcomes or equality of opportunities. And it sounds like you feel like there's maybe a mix in there because it's individualized based on each specific person's need. Absolutely. Definitely. How is the best way 
Um, and we're not going to fix society, not in this 45 minutes, but. Oh, well, we're going to try though. <laughs> let's go for it. Let's go for it. Let's stop getting those penises bashed and let's like, let's heal everybody. So yeah. So how does that even happen? Right. Cause there's so many variables in the world. There's, 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 you know, financial differences, there's ethnic differences, there's gender differences. There's, you know, uh, we were talking before we started filming just location, you know, growing up in Ohio and now living in New Hampshire versus you're out in the Pacific Northwest and all that. So, you know, I guess I'm just asking for a general response and to sort of like how realistic is that on a global level? And because I can see it on an individual level, but I guess I'm a little stuck as to how are we going to all get there? Well, and also, I mean, on a global level, like there might even be some cultures who don't believe we even need to get there. I mean, the way the way that they're functioning or the way that they're they got their society set up for them might work really, really well for everybody. You know, and so it really is a very personalized preference of, you know, kind of what are you feeling is missing in your life and how do you go after it? And I think, you know, especially for folks who just, you know, don't have a whole lot of opportunities. I mean, I think fear has been a huge divider between, you know, what is like basically what people need and how they get it. And I think fear is a huge thing that really just trying to formulate my word here. I'm trying not to like bash Fox News, but I think just in terms of like fear mongering, you know, just that serves as a divider of, no, it's either this way or it's this way, you know? And I'm, side note, not looking forward to the upcoming election, not because I want any one particular person to win, but I am just fucking sick of the fact that like, it's either this or this. And if you're not this way, then you're automatically against something. And it's just like, oh my gosh, it's just, it's, it's too divided. So anyway, I guess what I'm trying to say in all of that is that there are so many more than two sides. There are so many more needs that need to be met. And I think that feminism serves as a way to really individualize needs and then try and tailor resources to meet those needs. I really love how you said that right off the bat about it's, you know, it's not so much getting caught up in these big categories of us versus them or one or the other. It's more about on an individual level you know, wherever you're starting out, what are your needs? What are your aspirations? And how do you chart a path to get there? Right. And, and taking those individual differences into consideration. So it's not a one size fits all plan. If it was, we could just hand everybody the same treatment plan and say, just go do this. Right. I mean, absolutely. I love how you said that. And I'm also wondering, you know, you talk about the political piece of it. We can, we can touch that. We can touch that stove a little bit. So <laughs> like, I mean, it's burning already. I'm too close. <laughs> <laughs> like living near Seattle, I think you have really intimate experience with kind of like, I mean, how things can really get out of control. Cause again, 3000 miles away, Seattle seemed like a crazy place for a couple weeks back then. So did you have any experience with that or could you see that kind of boiling up? I mean, what is it like to be close to that? At that time, especially when like Chaz was forming and defund the police was going on, right? I mean, when all that stuff was happening, I was working at a hospital um, as a as a social worker slash therapist. And it was really interesting to see how, because we worked really, really close with like um, law enforcement and special, special assault and victim units and stuff like that. And so... Um, it was really interesting to hear that feedback from both like the, the the victims or survivors that we were seeing from like a community standpoint, but then also hearing how the, you know, Blue Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter thing was impacting, you know, the defund the police stuff as well. Like it was we we got it from every single angle and it just seemed like I understand where you're coming from. And also, it doesn't seem right. Right, right. <laughs> the right. way that we're all going about this doesn't seem right. And I don't have a solution, but it, this isn't it. <laughs> I'm also mad about that thing, but I don't know how the car catching fire fixes that thing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. I just, I don't know. I really don't think you can fight fire with fire and expect the fire to go out. Like that's not how that works, you know? Yeah. And as therapists, it's really been hard because we are lapsing into this kind of who can yell the loudest, who can get the biggest platform kind of, you know, culture. And I, I love what you said too, because I talked about that on a previous episode where just because I don't like this thing does not mean I do like the polar opposite of that thing. There's so many shades of gray, right? And so, you know, just call it what it is. And somebody says, oh, do you like Biden? And somebody goes, no. And they go, well, then you love Trump and you suck. Or you go, oh, do you love Trump? And they go, no. And they're like, oh, what do you, you know, you're a Biden, you know, you like 
for you know funding foreign wars. No, I maybe I don't like either one of those things. Maybe I like something in the middle. Maybe I like elements here and elements over there. It's such a buffet. So I'm with you on that. Uh, from coast to coast, we can unite on that. And if somebody's seeking to divide, like just get the hell out of here with that. It's not working. It's not an either or thing. It's a shades of gray world. Like stop with the one versus the other stuff. It's exhausting, you know. The dichotomies and the black and white thinking is just, it's too much for me. I live in the gray and I love the gray. Oh my God. <laughs> well, and let's talk about that because, you know, with your, you know, you're doing therapeutic work. So tell me your background. How many years have you been doing this and where have you focused your efforts? Have you been in one particular population you're working with or one particular approach? Like what's been your evolution as a therapist working in those shades of gray with each client? I started um, my master's program in 2015, graduated in 2017, but had been doing, you know, therapy with folks, especially EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing therapy since 2016. Um, And so my primary population is adults who have an extensive history with trauma. So whether that be childhood trauma and, you know, family stuff, or whether that be um, first responders and, you know, just continuous like exposure to trauma in their adult life. yeah, just a lot of trauma work. And with that, I mean, my populations that I primarily work with are sexual assault survivors, um, first responders, and just folks who are just genuine, just generally dissociative. Um, I work, I really have a fascination and interest with dissociative disorders um, and just how it everything is along a spectrum. Um, like you can just really quick, like with dissociation, right? I mean, you could be zoning out while you're listening to a song in your car and be like, how did I drive home without dying? Like, I made it home and I do not remember any of that. What the hell just happened? And then you could have all the way on the other end of the spectrum, which is multiple personality disorder, which is now called dissociative identity disorder, which is literally you lose pieces of your life (laughs) and you don't remember what has happened. So it's just fascinating. But I mean, and that all stems from trauma. That all stems from our brain trying to figure out a way to keep us safe as possible and just doing the best that it can. Anytime did comes up, I'm always pushing the, the John Cusack movie, Identity. I don't know if you've ever seen that uh, the, with the hotel and everything. Yeah. It's like, if you want a sort of introduction to what we're talking about. Right. You know, go, uh, go watch that. They, they do an okay job. <laughs> so, um, so the trauma piece, I really want to dig into that. So, you know, because that is the buzzword. Everybody has trauma. Nobody has trauma. There's everybody somewhere in between. And I mean, to a person, pretty much every practitioner I've had on this show, they've mentioned working with trauma in, in some regard. So why are we dealing with so much trauma? Is it the world has gotten so bad? Are we better at identifying trauma? Are we understanding? Is it a combination? Like, why, why, why is there so much of this in the world right now? Yeah, I think at least for me and my work, trauma had always, and especially when I talk to first responders about this, because they are, they usually come because either they have to, or (laughs) they're like reaching a point where it's like, I I can't physically work anymore. I need to work on this. Um, And when I tell them that trauma isn't the event that happened, it's how your body and your brain reacted to it that kind of changes the definition a little bit. So, you know, it doesn't have to be, trauma doesn't have to be this big, huge event. We don't have to go and be in at war or we don't have to, you know, rescue people from burning buildings in order to experience trauma. Like trauma can be little microaggressions that build up, build up over time and, you know, create this negative self-image, negative experience and feelings of just general unsafety, even though objectively you are safe in your world right now. Um, And so for me, like I'm noticing that I'm just helping people define what trauma is more rather than there actually being more trauma in the world. Now, with that being said, obviously being a therapist in 2020, (laughs) that's been an interesting experience because obviously we also were experiencing pretty traumatic things. However, just because the pandemic was a trauma doesn't necessarily mean it was traumatic for me or my experience with it could have been different, you know, than somebody else's. So it's just, it, it, again, kind of going back to like the, the feminism thing, it's, it's really individualized for each person. And yeah, I mean, trauma is kind of how your body reacted to something versus what the actual event was. I don't want to hijack the 
the interview, but here I go. So um, one Do thing, it. I, oh, <laughs> you'll, well, you'll appreciate the story, I think. And I'll tell the very fast version of it that illustrates what you just talked about, about it being a personal experience. So I worked with, I worked in addiction. So a lot of trauma, response to trauma, right? Substance abuse is a, a coping mechanism that can get out of control. And I was always struck by, um, you know, how something horrible could happen to somebody and they're like, okay, they're not stuck, you know, doesn't mean they don't ever think about it. Doesn't mean they don't have any symptomology at all, but they're, they're kind of managing it. Right. And then something else that's relatively minor can just devastate somebody. Right. And so back to back sessions one day I had, um, and I'll be very, I'll mix up some of the details. Obviously we're going to protect everybody's information here, but somebody who was actually uh, human trafficked, right. She was kidnapped and put into human trafficking and uh, was, you know, endured all the horrible things that go with human trafficking and, and the sex trade and, you know, just anything you can imagine. You know, Liam Neeson taken on steroids. It's like Liam Neeson if he didn't find his daughter. Like that's what that's what we're talking about, right? For years, for years and years. For two years. Yeah, that's exactly right. And was found by a family member, all right, and rescued. That family member took custody of her and then continued the trauma continued the behavior individually. And one of the most devastating cases I could ever think of, right? Like I, I'm, I'm 11 years old, I'm saved. Oh, no, I'm not. It's about to get worse. And straight A student, pretty calm, managed it. When we brought up the issue, she goes, everybody I work with always tries to talk about this. But honestly, like I'm good. Like here's how I think about it. I won't get into her explanation, but she had a conception around it and I'm good. Literally, my next session, just to give you the idea of a day of a therapist, you go from that to, you know, <laughs> something else. Literally, my next session, I had somebody in there who, um, at a pool party with her family, uh, one, of her fa one of her father's friends uh, touched her inappropriately one time. Horrible. Not okay. Not three years in the sex trade either, right? She was completely wrecked. She was not functional because of what this meant to her and her world. And now if I'm not even safe in this context, how in the world am I safe anywhere else in the world, right? And so I, I'm, again, I'm sorry to kind of take over, but those two things, I think about that a lot. That was a crazy day. Uh, but I think about that because literally one hour to the next, you had somebody who endured some of the worst trauma you can imagine and was going to college, was functional, was had a life plan, was healthy in her relationships, was sexually active and fine with it. Like not, you know, she was functional. And the next one, it was a total rebuild, if you will, um, because it was like, I'm zeroed out and I'm absolutely lost. And so... Um, I don't know where we go from there, but now... No, but instantly, and instantly my... Because I've also worked with sex trafficking victims. Instantly, my mind goes to, if you start in a pretty unsafe space and then you slowly gain safety, like that feels really, really good. If you start in a totally safe space and then you encounter things that are not safe, that's not going to feel good at all. That's so profound. That's really, really good. So it's almost the contrast between my baseline. Speaking of super horrible and unsafe things, domestic violence in general, right? So we're talking about different types of, of trauma. Tell me, because, you know, it's so funny. We, we sort of accept these things, right? Like, okay, if I've endured sexual assault or I've endured domestic violence, I'm going to be traumatized. But tell me a little bit about specifically what kind of problems and what kind of symptoms that causes, right? So I have an abusive relationship, but I'm no longer there what am I carrying with me into my future? Like what problems and symptoms are you seeing? Like what are the ramifications and long-term issues that happen from those experiences? I can speak from personal experience. Cause I, I mean, again, between like what it was, what a relationship was modeled to me when I was growing up was not the healthiest thing. It basically was abandon your needs and take care of the needs of others basically. And so with me, when I would go then into romantic relationships and trying to establish, you know, what, what it means for me to be a partner, it would very much be that same thing of abandon, you know, whatever you want and go and, you know, help that person get whatever they want. And because the people I was picking were not the best, um, it very much was take and take and take and take and give nothing in return and then blame that person for when, you know, they're not able to meet those needs. And so for me on personal experience, like when, when I was going into other relationships after having a domestic violence relationship, it was very much like, you know, just sort of this emotional scarring of I am terrified to open myself up to this and also trauma is familiar to me. Toxicity is familiar to me. So this must be love. 
Like this must be the definition of love. This feels familiar, therefore it must be good. And of course, that's not <laughs> that's not the case. Um, but I mean, it, it very much is, you have to do a lot of deep individualized work um, in order to heal and recognize sort of your part, their part, everyone's part, what happened, everything to not carry that into the next relationship and certainly not victim blaming at all. Because I mean, obviously there are things that put, you know, people who are survivors of domestic violence into situations where they have repeat uh, experiences in relationship where they are victims or survivors. And so like something in their life, whatever it was, made it okay for them to experience some sort of like microaggression or emotional abuse or something and then be like, oh no, this is fine. I'm going to, I'm going to continue to stay, you know? So it's, it's really interesting, the healing work that has to be done in order to move on to another relationship. Otherwise it seems to me again, from personal experience that you're just going to keep repeating those things. I was going to ask too, is the timing of that too? Like if your first relationship is toxic or your first relationship is abusive, do you find that that's what sort of sets the stage for that picking the same partner over and over and re-experiencing that relationship? Are they, are they more at risk, you know? I think so. And I only say that just because, again, it depends on the individual and their experience. But if you felt, if you walk away from that relationship and you feel as the victim, I could have done more. I should have done more. I, you know, I'm blaming myself for the relationship ending. I'm feeling like, you know, I could have done better. I could have changed that person or whatever. If you have a, a complete delusion of how much control you had in that relationship and you go to the next relationship thinking that you have, have that same amount of control, like that's probably, that pattern's probably going to repeat itself. If you walk away from the relationship and you're thinking that sucked, that was horrible. I hated every single bit of that. That was awful. How stupid of me to, to, you know, have done X, Y, and Z, even though you're not stupid, you're doing the best you can. Like, you know, what? I, I never want to experience that again. That was horrible. If you have that experience and then you go into a new relationship, chances are your senses are a little bit more sensitive to mistreatment and feeling that feeling. And it might be easier for you to reject that. You know, the first sign of maybe emotional abuse or manipulation, you're like, that feels familiar and disgusting, and I don't want that in my life. Thank you very much for your time. Before we go on, I want to say a few words about a new behavioral health. A new behavioral health is an outpatient provider of mental health and substance abuse services in Ohio and New Hampshire. That means that a new can successfully treat mental health and substance abuse issues or dual diagnosis if you're struggling with both. Their integrated approach allows for them to successfully address issues related to anxiety, depression, addiction, trauma, and really anything that stands between your life and the life you could be living. You really cannot bring them an issue that they have not successfully treated. They have also solved one of the biggest problems for people seeking help. They have a dedicated team waiting to hear from you at helpnow at anewbh.com. If you contact them today, within 24 hours, you will have heard back from wait for this, a real live person, and we'll also have your first appointment scheduled at that time. So how do you contact them? Well, if you're in Ohio or New Hampshire, you're probably close to one of their local locations. You're welcome to go in. If not, you can always reach them online at anewbh.com. And if you're interested in services for you or loved one, use that address, helpnow at anewbh.com. Young people, my own kids, and one thing I talk about, because I think we've missed that part of the early experiences, you know, you think you go out and you just find what you like, right? Like, I'm like, I like a person who looks a certain way, who lives their life a certain way, and who treats me a certain way. But I actually think the early experiences are more about finding out what you don't like, you know? And that's why, you know, dating around, you know, we're not, we're not even going to get into the conversation about being promiscuous and stuff like that. But I think it's important to have, you know, multiple experiences, you know, whether it's just going to the movies with three or four different people or hanging out or whatever, you know, wherever you set your limits, because you're going to, you're going to compile a list of things that you really liked, but you're also going to have that other list of things that like, oh, I didn't like that. And that becomes your new like red flags, right? Like, Ooh, that reminds me. And I know where this ends up. You know what I mean? So I love that you said that because it's important to keep a, a ledger on both sides, you know? Well, and this is how dissociation kind of messes with red flags too, is that if you are not in your body or if you are not connected with the world around you, or if you are not able to really recognize how much damage someone or something is doing to you, like that's not going to register as a red flag. I have a lot of clients who come in and they say like, now let's go over some red flags. Like what are some standard red flags? And it's like, well, 
I could list the obvious, like if they're calling you names, if they're beating you up, if, you know, if they're doing like these things, like obviously those are huge red flags. I mean, abuse is a red flag. And also like, if you are just finding that the way that they're treating you or the way that they're talking to you or the things that they're doing, or they're not listening to you or whatever, if those resonate in your body as like a very disgusting feeling or like I'm not treasured or I'm not loved, like those could be red flags. Like, you know, but again, if you're dissociative and you're not able to check in with yourself and understand what's happening, like those things are going to kind of fly over you. And just to throw some buzzwords at it, when you're talking about like, I need to, I need to do and be all I can be for this other person. Um, and, you know, codependency gets thrown around a lot, right? You know, and sort of like your needs, not mine. And uh, But you found a direct correlation between the presence of that codependency and the, is it, is it more about finding a person that would exploit that codependency and they happen to be naturally abusive? Or do you think it was the lowering of the boundaries that takes place in the codependency that led to the abuse directly? Kind of like, well, if this is okay, maybe this is okay. Maybe this is okay. I mean, what was your experience with that? I mean, I would say a little bit of both. And I definitely think that codependency really comes from, I, like, what is that? The Shel Silverstein book or whatever, the missing piece, yeah, like whatever yeah. that is, yeah, right? Yeah. Like that's very, that is very much the example I use to talk to my clients about like that, you know, like, you need to roll, even though you're a little triangle or even though you're missing a little piece, you need to roll down the path until you are a complete circle. Like, do not look for somebody to fill that missing piece for you. But I mean, it's, I think that, yeah, if we are feeling like a piece of us is missing just in terms of like, um, I don't feel confident or I don't feel good enough or I don't feel safe or I don't feel all these things, um, but somebody else could help me feel that, then that's kind of that codependency. If you are relying on somebody to make you feel things that you are capable of, of making yourself feel or ha having yourself feel those feelings, that's that's codependency. If you cannot live your separate life and both be secure, individual, happy people, you need to rely on yourself to create that. Like, that's not good. My phrase for that is be somebody, then worry about being with somebody. Absolutely. Because I think identity plays such a huge role in that. And if you have, it doesn't have to be fixed, but if you have a firm identity, you have a sense of who you are. When somebody intrudes upon that, then you're faced with a decision not of, will I tolerate this behavior, but am I really going to change who I am fundamentally to accommodate this person? Probably not, not a fit, you know, so. Yeah. Do, does this person like me? No, it's, do you like that person? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And do you like who you are when you're with that person? That too. Absolutely. It's a big part of it. Ian, you had some, you had a thought on this. Ian's raising his hand like he's in class. So I need to call on him. So. Well, I have to, I don't want to wreck you emotionally by inter interrupting. No, no, uh, but, um, I'm wrecked Ian. Go for it. It's perfect time. Um, you mentioned dissociation and how that can be a blind spot for people and why people can get into relationships that aren't a fit for them because of that. Um, what can people do to not be in a, I guess, dissociated state? Just kind of a one-on-one for people listening. What, like, what is disassociation and how does it happen? So as you get into the, like, what we can do about it, can you please like kind of baseline that out? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yep. So, Dissociation basically means that you are either disconnected or like detached, feelings of detachment from yourself or the world around you. So there are four types of dissociation um, and really quick, I'll just go over them. So the first one is absorption or imaginative, meaning that you are so disconnected from the world around you, you actually reside up in your mind and your brain. You don't really feel your body. You kind of just distract with like TV or books or things like that, things that keep your mind active. Um, there's derealization, which means that you are disconnected from the world around you. You don't really feel like you or your body belong or are attached to anything in the world. Um, there's depersonalization, which means that you are not really attached to relationships in general. You don't really feel um, like attached to yourself. You don't really feel like you have a relationship with yourself, nor can you have relationships with other people. And then the last one is what we've talked about already, the dissociative identity disorder or multiple personality disorder. So just being so, your brain is being so segregated and compartmentalized that different parts of your brain light up. And when they do, they do not have communication with the other parts. And so you are literally a different person or have different preferences or have different memories or have different experiences based on whatever part of your brain is lighting up. And that can get very complicated very quickly. <laughs> and it's hard to diagnose as well. And is it something where people, because it's so funny, by very nature can... Can anybody recognize when they're disassociating? I mean, or are they just sort of like along for the ride? 
Yeah, I think that it's unless it's until you bring awareness to the situation that they then are able to kind of recognize, oh, you're right. I did just sit on the edge of my bed and zone out for four hours after my shower. That's kind of weird. Do people not do that? Like it's very, once you bring awareness to the situation, for me, especially, I I kind of screen for dissociation. So as a therapist, we can use, you know, dissociative screening tools. Um, but in terms of like getting your client to notice when they're dissociative, it's very much like why don't you check in with yourself a little bit more often? So like set a reminder on your phone, physically check in with yourself. Am I feeling my body right now? Can I, I'm looking at my hands. Do they feel connected to me? I'm looking at the world around me. Does it feel like I belong here? Um, so just really bringing much more awareness and mindfulness and grounding uh, tools really help with just noticing dissociation. Yeah. What is the grounding piece? It's uh, it's, it's something you can see, you know, it's all your senses, right? So sometimes people put five, four, three, two, one on it or whatever, but it's like five things you can see, four things you can touch, uh, three things you can hear, two things you can smell and one thing, I forget the last one thing. It's something that you can, yeah. And for me, I'm like, I, I will never remember that. Just, just name one for each. <laughs> <laughs> I won't remember that. You won't remember that. Just name one thing for each. <laughs> for I can see my phone and now they're back on. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I can smell. I don't know. I'm tasting my tongue. I don't know. Sure. I can smell the toast that I cooked an hour ago <laughs> and I forgot about because I was on my phone. Those phones are, they're wrecking us, right? Like our brains are not ready. Like they're just, they're just, yeah, yeah. I mean, you want to talk about a dissociative experience. Like if you are on a bus or um, I guess actually if just anywhere, if you're anywhere and you see somebody who is physically moving or physically trying to do something while they are looking at their phone, they are absolutely not grounded in reality. Their mind is completely detached from their body. Their body is doing whatever it is, whatever it needs to do. And their mind is completely somewhere else. And you think about that the next time you see somebody head down texting and driving, right? Like that person's literally not here. They're, they're not with us, even if you're both going 70 miles an hour on the highway. They're, they're not. They're along for the rides. Now, I wonder what examples of that we could look at in terms of relationships, you know. As far as dissociation and relationships? So you're saying like how you could tell if your partner's dissociating? No, how to tell if you're dissociating and you're not seeing those red flags. You know, what's an example of that? Are you maybe, for example, up in your head about, you know, those fantasies that you have of what could be? And then you're not really there. I have a thought, but I'll let Christina go first because she's the expert. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I was just, I think that what comes to mind is truly like because it is an experience that you have that you are unaware of, I don't necessarily know that you would notice a whole lot until either somebody points it out, so somebody else externally points something out to you, or like one day, and it's totally possible, one day you just have a day where you are energized or you feel more grounded than normal or you're just, it's kind of those aha moments where you're like, what in the hell am I doing? Like, what's, what's happening right now? I don't feel good. So sometimes those things happen. It's entirely possible. But more likely than not, it very much looks like going to a therapist or going to a friend or a family member or something and being like, hey, buddy, by the way, you've been in this relationship for 16 years and you don't seem very happy. Like, what's happening right now? I think proactive work is what's important. Mindfulness jumps to mind for me, right? So doing that work, especially in a world where we are force-fed stimulation at all times, you know, I mean... You people listening and watching this right now, you're receiving that stimulation. That's, you know, this is part of the thing, right? So um, it's a little bit different than those 30-second clips on Instagram. There's some substance here, right? So, but, you know, it's always happening. And so, you know, working, and I, listen, I suck at this and I want to be good at it. I practice it. But the idea of somebody who can like hit yoga up or just sit there and do mindfulness, like I'm still at the stage where I have to do guided meditations when I do them because like literally just sitting there, dark room with myself, feeling my legs. Like, how do my, why do my legs feel like this? I mean, my mind is searching for that constant input still. But I think if you do that proactive working to answer your question, if you sort of like, hey, I recognize the damage that this can do, or I'm feeling a certain level of dissatisfaction with myself in this relationship or the relationship as a whole, I think getting proactive first instead of like analyzing day to day, you know, because short of setting up cameras and watching yourself, like how are you going to observe? But working on that presence and like the Buddha say, be here now, the more that you can be there and be present, you know, and as far as a sign that it's happening, not that you have to be holding hands with your girlfriend all day long, but anything that is on a regular basis that is driving a wedge and distancing you like, hey, I hang out with my wife, but I'm not really there. I'm on my phone all the time. Right. You know, and then she's like, you know, babe, 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 huh? Huh? Like that kind of thing is like, you're not really there, you know? So I think seeking opportunities to actually be present in whatever's going on and noticing that you're not doing that, I think those are going to be your warning signs. Um, 
Cause it's, it's, it is, um, it's seductive and it's just so, it's a warm bath, man. It's so easy to just slide into it, you know? And there are so many things in the world right now that it would feel great to disconnect from. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As well. Especially the year coming up. Right. I mean, yep. you know, it's like, yep. it's like, like, absolutely. Like I will not be watching the news. I will not be like following any sort of like news sources or anything on social media. I'll probably get rid of social media. Like who knows? <laughs> And where do we even get news nowadays, right? I mean, it's... And that's a whole thing, we too, We get right? commercials, you know, so... We get fear-mongering and emotional manipulation. I think about those kooks when I was growing up hearing about people who, like, threw away their TV, and I'm like, they're so crazy. And now it's like, well, I kind of... Mm, I kind of get where we're going. So we get loosely back on track. So, Christina, with your work... Um, I know every client is its own story and individualized, but you've mentioned things like EMDR, obviously working with sexual trauma. Is there a way that you kind of, um, you know, on a regular basis, get into your work, kind of a, a typical approach, like your base of operations, if you will, like someone comes to you and says, hey, I'm dealing with this. I've been abused or I've been hurt. Or I'm dealing with trauma. How do you how do you even get started with something like that? For me, my normal path, I mean, I am a sucker for scientific data. So for me, it's always assessing like the current symptoms, right? So PHQ-9s and G87s and dissociative screenings and ACEs and all that kind of stuff, all of that information. And ACEs, for those who don't know, Adverse Childhood Experiences Scale is one of the most incredible tools. And if you are not using it, you need to use it. Um, like there is actually a study that I'm really excited to get to talk about right now. Um, there's a study that uh, happened several, several years ago. I'm not quite sure. And I'm probably going to butcher all of the information. But the goal of the study was to figure out is medication uh, resistance. So people who, you know, have depression or whatever, they're on depressive medications and they're, it's just not working. Not, it's not alleviating any of the symptoms. Is there a connection between uh, a high ACE score or childhood trauma and like medication resistant like experiences? And it sure as hell found out that if you have a high A score of five or more, so the questions are out of 10, um, and they're all questions asking you of things, potential abuses or neglects that you've experienced under the age of 18. Um, if you have an ACE of five or more, that your brain has been permanently altered because of the trauma that you've experienced, and therefore the medications are not going to work because medications don't change the shape of your brain. So say that again. If your trauma is too high or you've, your, your score is too high, and so objectively your experience of trauma is too impactful or you've experienced too much of it, medications are actually not effective for you. They most likely are not. I'm sure that there's wonderful experiences that folks have who maybe have a PTSD diagnosis, have depressive symptoms, are on medications and have a wonderful experience. But if you're finding that you've had childhood trauma and the medications that you're on are just not alleviating your symptoms, potentially a different route might be really good. Maybe, oh, I don't know, a therapy like EMDR that can actually change the shape of your brain. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. So so doing stuff like that. So really assessing where the client's at, obviously, but then really figuring out the data that supports, like, is EMDR going to be beneficial for them? Obviously, the answer is yes, no matter what. But how beneficial is it going to be for them? So I think screening for dissociation is just, and the ACEs is my number one thing that I, that I use at first session right off the bat. Let's figure out where you are right now. Um, my favorite question to ask my clients is, do you feel safe? when you know you are safe. If they say no, then that's definitely something we need to work on because they're never going to feel safe no matter where they are. Like they're not going to feel safe in their body. So we need to work on that. If they say, you know, ah, I don't, I don't know. Then the question is, do you feel like you can keep yourself safe when you feel unsafe? And if they say no, it's like, all right, well, we got to work on that. You know, so one of those things is objective feelings of safety. The other is trust within yourself. And so those are, those are two t places that we typically start. And when you say work on that, how do you work on it? So the first thing is to figure out how, how can we make it so that you actually feel safe when you know you're safe? Typically, one of the reasons why people don't is because they're experiencing dissociation or potentially their body or brain feels like they are still stuck in whatever the original thing was that made them feel unsafe. Um, and so again, really practicing, how do we get you grounded in the present moment so that you can recognize what actual safety feels like? Um, and so sometimes there are some tools in EMDR that we use where we can use eye movements or tapping to really figure out how to get them here in the present moment, what symbolizes safety for them, you know, how do we use that in and outside of session, but then also just what is it like to be in your body? Like, and if it doesn't feel safe in your body, are there things that we can do to make your body feel safer? 
typically where that comes in is my favorite thing in the world. And that's incorporating humor and laughter into the therapy sessions. So I am the type of person who I joke and I'm sarcastic and swear all the time with my clients because laughter and being sarcastic and ridiculous is one of the most grounding tools that anybody could ever have. Like that's just, that's a fact. And I think that if people can have a really good understanding of I can experience really shitty and horrible and tragic emotions and also have gratitude and laugh at the end of the day, that's a pretty powerful tool. And nobody's laughing when they're, when they're unsafe, right? So there's some, there's some baseline signaling that if I'm laughing here, you actually are in a safe space and you can, you can signal that. And, and it's actually, um, studies show, uh, authenticity goes up, you know, the therapeutic alliance, which is the whole thing to me. Uh, you know, whether you do person centered, whatever across the board, it's that, can you connect? Um, and it goes up and actually cussing. Ian, you, you get on me about my cussing, but it actually people find those people more trustworthy uh, because there's a there's a, a feeling of authenticity, right? They're not hiding anything from me. They're even saying those bad words they shouldn't be saying. You know, yeah, let's fuck it up. Absolutely, no judgments here. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think it was Carl Rogers. It was so funny. There was a, a session we watched, and he was with a guy, and uh, the the guy was you know, had had paralyzed from the waist down. Was been through all kinds of horrible things. You know, one of these like I've lost my will to live kind of things. I used to be healthy. I used to be all this, and he was running off this list of like you know, 10 horrible things that had happened to me, right? And Carl Rogers is just like, you know, Mount Rushmore, one of the guys, you know? So you expect this like super profound, you know, amazing, insightful thing that follows this whole list of complaints. And I remember watching the video and he just sits in his chair and he goes, well, shit, you know? And the client breaks up because he's like, you know, it took this like, the serious sort of life ending altering thing and just sort of like, yeah, sometimes it, it, it just sucks. You know, maybe this just sucks. And, and we're going to deal with that. And he, he even explained like, that's, you're the first guy I felt like that got it. They didn't try to rush in and fix me right away. Just actually sought to understand me, which was Carl Rogers whole thing, you know? So let me lay some empathy on you and sit with you, sit with your shitty stuff. Like, let's just sit in it together. So you're not alone in it. Yeah, because without that, everything else is Yahoo News, top 10 things to do if you're depressed, top 10 things to do if you, you know, get hit by your significant other. You know, it's sort of like, you know, chat GPT therapy, which is coming, by the way. Um, <laughs> so cool. You're going <laughs> to have to you're gonna have to teach me how you did that with one eye because that was an awesome look. But um, But that's what that's going to be. My disdain. It's just going to be stimulus response. You know, you said, so the answer is, you said the answer is, uh, Chad GPT is not going to say, oh, well, shit. When you're your own worst enemy and you're, you are the reason why sometimes things in your life are not going well, Chat GPT is not going to know how to call you out on that. That's right. Right. Yeah. How can they help you have a human experience? Because I read a book about a human once. Yes. Yeah, the map the map is not the territory, folks. You know? so. <laughs> Absolutely. How does EMDR change the shape of my brain? I'm curious about this. Yeah. Yeah. So so for those who don't know, so hopefully you know, but um so eye movement desensitization reprocessing therapy, which is a mouthful to say. Um that is it ultimately it uses REM sleep, so rapid eye movement, um, as the mechanism for reprocessing. So our right hemisphere holds our emotions, the present moment, kind of more ties to our body, feelings of, you know, just intense emotions. And our left side, our left hemisphere, holds logic, reasoning, past and present, mathematics, you know, whatever. Basically, it doesn't really have a whole lot of ties to our body or emotions. It holds facts. And so when we are experiencing processing, what processing actually means is how do we get the emotions and the facts, our feelings and, you know, events to line up together to be on the same page. And so what the eye movements or what's called bilateral stimulation, stimulating both sides of your brain um, at the same time, uh, what that means is you are stimulating the corpus callosum, which is the connector between the right and left hemisphere. And ultimately making processing go faster. So rapidly and manually stimulating your brain to process things. Um, and so how that helps change the shape of your brain is once your brain and your body are able to finally be on the same page, meaning I think something and I feel something, I think I shouldn't do that and I feel I shouldn't do that, you know, that helps your brain 
kind of realize, oh, okay, so our amygdala center or our, our, you know, thalamus or our hippocampus or all these things that may or may not have grown abnormally due to, you know, trying to process and cope with trauma, those can relax a little bit or they can kind of go back to normal a little bit. It's kind of like the science behind the, you know, neuropathways where, you know, our, our brain is absolutely flexible. Like we can, we can form new neuropathways in our brain. This is very much how does our brain form new neuropathways and how does that help heal our brain and get that back to a healthier state? So even at a cellular level, it's sort of like communication is key. When both sides can talk to each other more effectively and efficiently, it allows us to get a better sense of, of what to do next. How long does that process typically last? If people seek this out, are they signing up for years and years and years of, of treatment? Or, you know, what are we expecting there? Yeah, so it depends. So, I mean, EMDR, what I love about it is it's just so damn versatile. So, I mean, you can you can come to an EMDR therapist and if the only trauma you've ever experienced in your life is a car accident, boom, like, well, let's do it. Let's process the car accident, how that made you feel, feelings of safety, all these things. And I mean, depending on how your brain picks up on EMDR, does it resist processing? Does it like processing? How does that sort of work? I mean, potentially you could process a car accident in one session. And a session is typically an hour, hour and a half, just like a normal therapy session. If you are feeling like, you know, uh, I don't trust people easily. I need to build up rapport with this therapist. I need to, you know, uh, ground myself in present safety. I need to really figure out my resources here in order to, you know, I don't know, guide me to a safer spot. I mean, I have a client that I've been working with for eight years. So, you know, like ever since I started doing EMDR, we're still working on stuff. And, um, I mean, it's just, it's so interesting how everything is connected. So like one thing that you might've done when you were, I don't know, four years old might absolutely predict like why you don't go to the grocery store at night. <laughs> like It is just so fascinating. And I think with EMDR, like people get, get the, the privilege of seeing how their brain works, how their brain categorizes information, how it processes things. And it's their brain doing the work. And there's nothing more empowering than being like, oh yeah, no. I just waved my fingers around. Your brain actually healed itself. So, you know, take that to the bank. Yeah. And the miracle that that can happen, you know, the hope that that springs eternal behind that. And, you know, and it's funny you talk about that client that's there for eight years, you know, somebody may listen to that and go, I mean, eight years and they're not, they're not ever cured. It's like none of us are ever cured, right? We're all evolving all the time. And what I hear is that that client has found value in that experience for eight years and continues to come back for that value that they experience. So I, I think that's a success story as much as the one and done clients are success stories, you know, because I doubt you're dragging them in. They probably choose to walk in, you know, so a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> So let me, let me change this up and, and maybe you don't have experience in this realm. And so please feel free to say like, that's not really where I want to go with this. But what about the flip side of this? We spend a lot of time on victims, but what if, you know, the old phrase hurt people, hurt people, right? So what if you're one of those people who is hurting people? You know, what if you're the abuser? What if you're the damager, you know? Um, do you have experience working with those folks? And if, if, if so, if you're comfortable talking about it, what are the steps? You know, how does somebody break that cycle, um, change the future uh, by working in the present on the past? I mean, what could an abuser do to turn this around? Yeah, I worked in community mental health for quite some time. And like right after, right after, I mean, we all have to, right? Like that's our, that's, that's our, our rite of passage yeah. <laughs> as, yeah, as a therapist, right? So when I was working there, there definitely were some folks who, you know, had, had been labeled and charged as sexual assault perpetrators. And, you know, some of them came to session and because it was mandated or something, um, those folks were not very interested in like really looking at their own behavior. They were much more interested in sort of focusing on the external factors that led them to then do what they did or whatever, which is fine. We can explain what happened. And also, how do we take that information and then apply it internally so we maybe, oh, I don't know, prevent that from happening again? So if the want isn't there, if the want to change isn't there, if you're just going and doing things because you're told to or you have to, like the change probably is not going to be very sustainable um, and probably won't even happen. But I definitely have had at least one client um, where, you know, he was very interested in sort of unpacking his own like childhood trauma and his own sexual assault experiences and how that sort of perpetuated him to be the perpetrator for somebody else simply because that was his way of feeling like he had power and control over the situation, over his own past stuff. And so 
it's it's really interesting to like you know on one side work with survivors sexual assault survivors and say yeah perpetrators are the worst aren't they they really suck i hate them and also then work with a perpetrator and have true empathy for their situation for those who want to change and want to do better and want to know kind of how do i not do this again or how do i yeah live my life as a normal person and not somebody who's trying to continuously get power over somebody else yeah, I mean, there's a school of thought that everything that we do is is an act of love or an ask for love, right? And it's hard to think about somebody, you know, abusing somebody sexually, physically, emotionally, otherwise as an ask for love. But when you say this is a person who was neglected as a child and when I'm in control of this person, I'm actually feeling like I'm in control of what happened to me in the past. You can kind of see that. You can kind of see that this is a quest to get their needs met. Uh, now the the victim doesn't want to hear much about that because <laughs> you know they're not they're focusing on their own story and their own healing and all that. Good I stuff. hope you mm-hmm. never get your needs met, and I hope you go to you know. But um, from a human experience, if you can kind of keep that in mind, as far as you know, an act of love or an ask for love, it kind of helps conceptualize it. And I think you stumbled into a great thing there too about the idea of voluntary participation in services. Right? It's the classic joke of like, how many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? Right? Just one, but the light bulb has to want to change. You know, uh, and so that's a huge component of this. And so. So uh, overcoming resistance, you know, um, with your approach, I I hate to fall into Yahoo News, but tips, techniques, or mindsets that you bring to an involuntary client to help them become, you know, 1% more voluntary as you go along? I mean, truly, like if they're, so basically the first thing is, is find a common alliance or a common goal or something that will align you with the person. Now, whether this is something that you need personally in order to even want to work with this person, or if this is something, right, or if this is something where you say out loud, like, hey, you know what? I don't really want to be here either. I'm getting paid five cents on the hour. Like, let's hang out, you know, whatever it is. So like finding some sort of common ground is going to be like the first thing for sure. I think. The second thing really is just going to say, you know, uh, meeting them where they're at. I know that for therapists, a lot of us get burned out very easily just because we are not meeting the client where they are at or where they would like to be met. We are meeting them where we would like them to be. And that is not what therapy is. (laughs) Like that is not good. (laughs) Yeah, you can't find find them where they're at if you're waiting for them where they should be. Exactly. (laughs) That is correct. Absolutely. No, there's no way. You really just need to to have patience. And, you know, if that's something that you need to work on outside of you you being the therapist, then perhaps go to therapy yourself. Um, But yeah, really just having patience. And again, just kind of knowing that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink, you know? So there's, there's just only so much that you can do. And there has to be some level of acceptance of, you know what? I have done absolutely everything that I know how to do. And like, this is just what it's going to be. And surrender and forgive yourself. And, you know, therapists sometimes try to be superheroes, right? And so the, the, the additional part to the lead a horse to water is you can't make them drink, but if you keep them around the water long enough, they're going to get thirsty, right? But if you exhaust before they exhaust, it's okay. And that's why we have colleagues and that's why we have referral forms. And that's why we have termination sessions and say, you know what? It's just not working, just not working, right? And knowing those bias and uh, biases coming in as well, you know, if you have a hot button issue, you know, you've experienced abuse yourself, you know, you shared that, you would be well within your right to say, I, I can't work with abusers because it takes me back to that place, you know? And so being honest with yourself as a therapist, and there's not enough of us out there, right? So it's not just as easy as like picking up the phone and they see somebody the next day. Um, but they're also not benefiting from the experience and you're certainly not benefiting from the experience either, right? Because we want you guys doing this for a long time. And if, if you get stuck with this client and you burn out, think of all the people you can't help because of that. So my arm gets tired pulling teeth. I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> That's a good one too. Christina, we're getting close on time, but was there, um, was there anything key that I missed or was there anything that you wanted to talk about today that I, I didn't stumble into? I, don't, I mean, for people who don't know, this podcast is hilarious because there, there's no questions. There's no plan. Like we, I mean, I, I've talked to people for an hour at a time for 20 years. I figure I can sit down with anybody and, and figure it out. And you're the same way. So sometimes things get missed. Um, is there anything you'd, you'd like to spend some time on? The only thing that I would say, you know, as something is just work on trusting your gut. 
And in order to trust your gut, you gotta, you gotta feel it. Like you gotta feel everything in it. So, I mean, really trying to practice trusting that you can withstand and survive really, really difficult emotions. They're not going to last forever. Emotions on average, if there's not a thought continuously feeding into it, they last for about 90 seconds. You can survive 90 seconds. You know, so really just proving to yourself constantly, like I can do really hard things. I can sit in really difficult emotions. And like, if I can, you know, experience the negative stuff, that means that I'm more receptive and more able to experience the positive stuff too. Because I think that a lot of people who are and have dissociative disorders, I mean, it's not that they're just not experiencing negative stuff. They're not experiencing anything. They're not experiencing positive stuff either. And so like, it's just a very unpleasant purgatory place to be where, you know, it's just, it's like, what is the point of this? And so really practice trusting your gut, listening to yourself and know that like, yes, life is hard and you can do hard things and it will be okay. You've survived this far and those tools have been amazing and awesome. And what if we learned something even better? That planting that seed of future possibility there, you know, what if you make it? What if you recover? What if you heal? What if you do end up living the life? You know, what if it works out better than you could imagine? You know, that's as likely as an outcome of as, as it going worse. And that appreciation, I love what you said about the appreciation. So uh, where we live, you know, not great weather in either place. You know, we, we joked about our two months of sunshine that we get every year. But I, I think we like the summer better because of it, right? Because when the flowers start to bloom and the sun comes out, you feel it. I mean, immediately, you know, you feel that appreciation. So it's just like your client, your sex trafficking client, right? It's like if I've been in the rain for and, you know, 40 degree freaking weather for, you know, 11 months out of the year, then I get one brief moment where it's 70 degrees and there's no humidity and it's beautiful. Like I am going to appreciate that and bask in that and use opportunities to make that happen for me. And if the sun doesn't come out, look at all the evidence that you have that you can flourish even during the rainy days, right? Because you've lived how many of those to this point. So amazing. Christina, how do people find you? Do you want to be found? How do, how do, how do we? (laughs) (laughs) Don't look me up. Um, yeah. So right now, um, I, you know, I always have a wait list for clients. So, you know, if you're interested in doing that, that's totally fine. And also I know my limits and I'm not going to take anybody else on until some other person drops out. So, um, but I think right now, like I'm really trying to, yeah, just work on social media presence. If you haven't checked out my Instagram, it is very funny. And I promise as a therapist, you will not, not enjoy it. You will enjoy it very much. Um, so my Instagram is at health insight counseling and uh, yeah, I just post funny stuff and sometimes educational stuff too. Listen, we're close on time. We'll post all this in the show notes below too. I'm supposed to point places. It goes down here, um, things like that. And we'll, we'll link to anything you want us to link to as well. So um, yeah, listen, as we draw close, I just want to express gratitude and appreciation to you for the time. Um, we, we had a little technical glitch at the beginning. You rolled with us through that. We've been trying to schedule this. So uh, an hour to a therapist is a huge amount of time, right? When you don't have a client. Um, so there's a million things I'm sure you could be doing with this hour. And I just feel uh, gratitude and appreciation that you chose to spend it with us. Yeah. I love what you do. I love your podcast. I love what you do. And I think that this is just such a good use of anybody's time to truly humanize therapists and just anybody, anybody's experience with mental health. And then also like provide people for, you know, some solutions is invaluable. I mean, it's wonderful. And you're a great therapist. I can tell the rapport is one of your, t- your top skills. And if it doesn't work out, comedy. I can see it. Like you've got, you've got the comedy gene for sure. So <laughs> it's the trauma, Jason. Yes. No, you, you beat me to it. So I, it's so funny. It's like, uh, you don't want too much trauma, right? Cause you, you, you know, and you don't want, because that's a damaged human. You don't want no trauma, uh, because that's no way to live. And hey, you're bland, boring. You want just enough trauma. Cause that's how you get a comedian, right? You want that, that middle ground, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I love it. <laughs> that's great. So Christina, thank you so much for coming by. Check her stuff out. She's here below. Uh, Ian, thank you so much for driving today. We had a very smooth flight. Appreciate all that you do for us. And for you guys at home, nothing but gratitude, love, and appreciation. Uh, Your time is your most valuable asset, and you chose to spend some of that with Christina and I. And uh, I hope you got at least one thing out of that. So we will part ways for today, but I look forward to seeing you next time. And until then, uh, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks so much. 
Hey guys, although Through Help and Back is an excellent podcast with a lot of great ideas, I do want to let you know that in no way is Through Help and Back expected to be perceived as or relied upon in any way as specific medical advice or mental health advice for you personally. The information provided through Through Help and Back on our website or our podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment that can be provided by your own providers. Do not use our content in lieu of professional advice given by qualified medical professionals and do not disregard professional medical advice or delay seeking professional advice because of the information you have read on our website, heard on our podcast, or otherwise received from us. Although we love discussing issues related to healthcare, mental health, and addiction, we are not providing direct healthcare, mental health care, medical, or nutrition therapy services. We're not attempting to diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure in any manner whatsoever any physical or psychological ailment, any mental or emotional issue, disease, or condition. We are not giving you specific medical, psychological, or religious advice whatsoever. Please take care of yourself and take care of others as you always seek the advice of your own medical providers and your own mental health providers regarding any questions or concerns you have about your specific health or before implementing any recommendations or suggestions from us. These are ideas that have worked for other people. We think it's important to share them. We do not guarantee that they will work for you specifically. Do not stop taking any medications without speaking to your physician nurse practitioner, physician assistant, mental health provider, or any other healthcare or medical professional. And if you have or suspect that you have a medical or mental health issue, contact your own healthcare provider promptly. Also, one last thing, if you know or suspect that you are currently experiencing a crisis, it is absolutely imperative that you seek the advice of your doctor or other emergency healthcare services prior to ever thinking about using our content. We love the conversations. We're glad you're stopping by. We hope you take a lot from the content. But again, for your specific individual medical situation, please always seek quality personal care from your own providers. Do not let this uh, information or this advice stand on its own. Thanks so much for listening.